All right, if you would, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We are going to continue in our series on living as exiles. And I want to read to you um, just a little bit further in the passage than we are actually going to walk through today together. But as you turn there, again, 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to read verses 3 through 9, but we're only going to walk together through verses 3 through 5. I just want to remind you again that these churches are gathered in a place called Asia Minor at the time, and essentially we know it to be about that region of present-day Turkey. And so the dispersion had occurred, which we know to be as a result of persecution that you can read in Acts. You can read it pretty much from Pentecost until Acts chapter 8 when there is both an awakening of the Spirit but then an opposition to the work of the Spirit, uh, namely towards the gospel of Christ. And as increased persecution occurs, then the people end up scattering throughout Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, okay? And then they make their way to these parts, which would be more the uttermost parts of the earth at the time or the end of the earth, even at the time, these greater outlying regions that really in many ways become gateway to what we would know as being the Western church or Western theology. So if you are a student of history whatsoever, then you would then immediately start to get into people like Tertullian, who within about a hundred or so years from the writing of what Peter's doing right here, okay? So that gets you out of scripture, but then begins to bridge into some recorded history. Tertullian was in the Turkish region. He was in Carthage, okay? So, and then he begins, he's really known as as somewhat, that's not saying we would agree wholeheartedly with everything that Tertullian taught, but a faithful theologian nonetheless, and was also persecuted for his faith. And in the course of it is known ultimately historically as the father of Western theology. So, you know, there's really, we start to see some bridges here between what we see in, in the conclusion of the, the writing, the closing of the canon of the scriptures. And then the, we can see regionally at least where that will then pick up into history that we have. So as we kind of shrink that down and realize again, look, we don't, you know, we, we would not allow um, anecdotal historical elements to um, exceed what we know and trust about the written word of God whatsoever. But to see the continuity and the, and the consistencies can actually help. I will say this, it's, it's almost a literary version of going to the promised land or going to Israel. If you've ever been, you know that something becomes a little more tactile. It becomes a little more visceral, a little more alive to you. It shouldn't, you shouldn't have to go there. We're, we're not those who believe in pilgrimages, so to speak, but there's something that can be a real blessing in that. And I think even historically, when you look on the page, when you look in the paper, and then as the scriptures have been closed, and then you start to pick up paper of things that are not inspired by the Spirit of God necessarily, but are just good, sound record, then we start to read about history of early Western civilization and people like Tertullian and others leading into what we would know about 150 years after that into Constantinople and what ends up giving birth to what we would call the Roman Catholic Church. You start to piece together some things and you see the theology that was causing all the problems the good sound theology that people had a problem with. And either they would persecute people physically, plunder, not hire them, not allow them to have jobs, whatever. And much of that external persecution is what's going on in the backdrop of these churches in this Turkish region in 1 Peter. 2 Peter deals with another type of persecution that occurs, which is in large part in response to that first type, which is this. Things don't go well. 
people then start to question whether or not God's around because, by the way, you know, if God's good and you're pleasing God, then that means good things are happening to you, right? Well, when that doesn't occur, which nowhere in Scripture does it actually say that does occur, that if you're faithful, it's always going to be good things. But for those who are not being taught consistently and well, it leaves a gap where then false teachers can step in. Then there becomes a false teaching type of persecution, but becomes more internal. See, on both cases, you have those who will disagree on the nature of external persecution and they'll divide over it. On the other hand, when false teaching then enters in, you will have a division, but it starts to be based on more teaching that is a mix of falsehood and truth, which obviously you know that to just turn it into falsehood. So this is the backdrop of both the letters that we have in First and Second Peter, same region of churches, two different types of persecution, but I think very relevant for where we are as a church because truly we do live in a world where the church is persecuted. We live in a world where the gospel is resisted and often attacked. On the other hand, I have an, inc- an incredible insufferable spirit when it comes to people in the West or pastors in the West who claim suffering just because they're having to tweak how they meet together in worship and they call that persecution. I'm like, do we even know what persecution is? Are you really going to say because you need to meet outside or at a little bit of a distance or this or that? Look, if when government comes against you or when people groups come against you or when armies come against you and start to plunder or say, no, you are not allowed to worship, then we are given to, to civil disobedience and we will even be martyred. But here in the West, I'm not saying it's never happened. I'm just saying to claim the kind of persecution that some have claimed over the last, I don't know, couple of years or more compared to what really does go on in the world. It's not persecution, at least not yet, not totally. I know there can be various stages But the fact is, there is resistance. So don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there's no resistance at all to the gospel. There is absolute resistance to the gospel. And that resistance comes in all manners and forms. Because sometimes that resistance to the gospel is by those who then want to marry politics and true sound theology and make it into something else. Well, that is a false religion just as is those who would claim that the gospel has no merits whatsoever. It's just one of 10,000 ways. Whatever your way is best works for you, that's good. That is not what we hold to either. And yet within the church, you can have the same mixed breed of divisive false doctrine. And in large part, it begins because we don't know how to deal with external persecution or external suffering. Whether that's through diseases, death, or through actual resistance from government or foreign peoples. Now, what Peter does in both letters is he reminds you, okay, well, the thing is, though, we're all foreigners if we're in Christ. We are elect exiles, meaning we are those who have been redeemed only by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. And therefore, just that that alone ends up putting us into a citizenship that does not have home anywhere here in the world. Now, that doesn't mean we should be radically irrelevant. It certainly doesn't mean we should be jerks about it. And it doesn't mean that we should be so hoity-toity about what we do because that is completely contrary to the nature of mercy and grace in the gospel, right? But we have to understand that nonetheless, we are sojourners. We are ambassadors. We are exiles. There is so much descriptive language of the New Testament church being foreign that Peter deemed it at the end of his life that this is the doctrine 
that the church, the ecclesiology, so to speak, that the church needed to grasp in order to suffer well and be faithful doctrinally or in their theology, in their teaching, in the face of suffering, in the face of false teachers that may come in. The goal is not then to understand and rally around everything that you're against. We are great at that at Western, as Westerners, right? We, you're, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. We live for that stuff. But what Peter starts with in both letters is, here's the nature of who you are. Here's the nature of the gospel. He starts with what should unify us as a people of God. Not starting with what we are rallying around that we are all against. Now, don't get me wrong. Peter then, in the middle of both letters, deals with specifics as to what's going on and says, look, this is trouble. This is going to be a difficulty or this is absolutely false and be aware that they will do something to disrupt you. He deals with those things. Still, we can deal with things right up front. But as a people of God, we should be marked by our unity in the spirit around the gospel of grace. We should not be known for all that we're against first. We should be known absolutely who we are for. So in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9, which is what I'll read first, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So from verse six through nine, we're actually not going to touch on that today, but I wanted you to see the context of what we're going to sit and look at just for a few moments in verses three through five. Because what's said in three through five is this, in, in a sense, kind of this, this gazing upon the beauty of what the new birth really is for us. Now, starting in verse six, he says, we do rejoice in this, but then there's some practical, um, it, it comes to bear practically in light of what Peter's talking about. But all of it is to produce what you end up seeing in verses eight and nine, which is praise. So I would want today to culminate in praise just as if, just as then next week, Lord willing, if we gather together, verses six through nine, in light of verses three through five, that also, that combined effect should also produce in us praise. So as we just simply sit and look together, almost as if we are traveling on a bus and we are heading to Niagara Falls or we are heading to the Grand Canyon and we sit and we open the door. And by the, by the way, if you ever do take a tour to such places, Please look online, find reviews, and find those who lead such tours led by people who are not chatty. 
These aren't places that you want people to talk it about, to, to talk it down, talk, I mean, just to even breathe words to it for even just the first few moments. You just want to sit and look. Now, that's a little bit counterintuitive for the fact that you're about to listen to a person who's very chatty, but nonetheless, we're going to go ahead and move forward. So, as I've been unpacking boxes, and again, it is just, uh, I don't know. Um, I, if I did not know hell to be an absolutely more tor- torturous place, um, the, the combined effect of, of cardboard cuts and breathing I'm sure mold-laden dust and other things, uh, it would feel very hellish to me. But I know better than that theologically, so I know that not to be the case. Now, however, um, there have been actually some really sweet blessings along the way. I found some old pictures of places that I've been. I've, I've been thinking about times that uh, lived in, in Germany for a while and really enjoyed that. And it was really in a lot of the message was thinking about places in nature that I'd been that really stuck with me. Because there's something about our text today that just reminds me of when you look at a place like Niagara Falls, the Grand Canyon, or other places that I've been, like um, the ruins of the Zapotec people in Oaxaca, and taking time to just be there and wonder at how in the world does this exist in 500 BC until about 720 or so AD, and it is still here. I mean, it's fantastic. Now, I'm also certain that there, are, there is an embedded spaceship there um, because uh, the non-Christian part of me wants there to be ancient peoples and aliens, but um, I have to let that go because that's not sound theology. But, um, but I was thinking even more recently for me as well, I was thinking about as I was in Germany, one of the places I remember the most is um, I was in Southern Germany in, in the more Bavarian region. and certainly spent some time in the Swiss Alps and that was clearly ridiculously fantastic. It's, you know, if you, if you look at, at the Poconos or um, Catskills and then you go to Colorado, then you, you realize, okay, there's a difference. Uh, but then when you go to the Swiss Alps and you think about Colorado, you start to realize there's a difference. Um, and, and as I was there, it's, it's fantastic. And I, I had all these pictures, but then I remember this one account where um, uh, Lieutenant Colonel and I decided to spend our Thanksgiving climbing uh, a mountain in uh, the Bavarian Alps. And uh, it was around Thanksgiving, it was actually the Thanksgiving holiday. And it, I just could not help but remember the account that I had in interacting with the interpreter because it was actually just outside of the NATO school that is there in Elbramagal for any of you who've served. And so we actually stayed there um, that weekend. Uh, but I remember the, one of the guys that greeted us that was in, encouraging us to be careful. His English was far worse than most. And um, although that often can provide humor, just as it would any of us going to a foreign country and the words that we would say, and people are very ki- way more kind to you than they really should be because of probably what you've offended them with. But as he tried to describe our need to be careful because of the ice, and, and I remember him, and I, I wouldn't try to do the, the, the English version of the accent of, of kind of the Schwabish uh, people, <laughs> but the way he described, he says, uh, be careful because last week, um, how do you say it, uh, bounced off? And I was going, what? And he says, yeah, and, and then uh, the guy that I was with fortunately did speak German, he says he didn't mean bounce off, but, he, but actually he did because there was a couple of people that bounced off the mountain on their way to their death to be careful. I was going, okay, there's a broken language here, but I'll never forget the imagery that came into my mind at the time and uh, has stuck with me now 30-something years later. And, uh, but it, you know, it didn't dissuade our desire still to climb because we knew there was a perspective waiting for us. 
It was worth the risk. There was a perspective waiting. There was no real practical outworking of it. There was, there was no new journey we were going to experience as far as getting to a new land, so to speak. We were just going up. But it was going to afford a perspective. And the experience, the journey itself was going to produce something in us as well. And, and I will never forget the time that I had with, with the lieutenant colonel and the experience that I had. But I also never experienced the description of the, the looming bouncing that could have occurred. When you gaze at a text like we have today, when he says things like, it's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, it is kept for you. These are things that just demand your gaze. They demand your attention to stop and think. So as we think about this, and in light of what we understand the context to be related to a people who are being encouraged to think about the gospel rightly, to live faithfully regardless of the circumstances, but in very real ways are being persecuted for their faith. We need to understand, I think, three key things about this, this passage, these three simple verses. And that is this, that the source of the new birth is clearly God. The source of the new birth. What he says in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. Now let's stop there. The source of our new birth is God. It is not a combined effect. It is not a, uh, a joint effort. It is not a conglomeration. It is not a consortium. It is not any kind of partnership that you had. Out of his great mercy, he deemed that his love for you was going to be extended to the point of redeeming you from sin and death. Not unlike the children of Israel back in the day when they were called to the Exodus. He loves you because he loves you. He has chosen sovereignly and graciously to express his love on you, particularly by showing his love in this. What do we know the scriptures to say? Well, but God's love is expressed this way, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. The source of the new birth is God, but it's not just God. It is actually this word blessed or blessed be the God, this phrase. It's a beautiful phrase that you see several places in the, in the scriptures. Now, it does mean praise. It does mean adoration, so praise be to the God. But the combined phrase itself essentially summarizes that God is inherently, distinctly a happy God. God was not sad and was lonely and then created people because he is somewhere drifting around in the vacuumous cosmos, the non-cosmos, and just needed people to hang out with. No, he was already infinitely happy. He decided that the creation of human beings in his image would then actually be a reflection or actually would then, yeah, in a sense, just reflect the glory that was spreading out through this universe that he just decided to make. But then in the course of it, he allows the fall to occur. And in that fall, he allows then for us to see that redemption through Christ, merciful, gracious, sovereign redemption that comes only from God through Jesus Christ is what would express, yes, it makes him happy, but it expresses the happiness that God already has. Basically, it is what gives him the greatest joy and pleasure. Therefore, what pleases God the most should be the thing that pleases us the most. And the second that we take our salvation to be a means to find happiness somewhere else, we have completely twisted the end game for what it means to understand the gospel. Here's what I mean. 
We too often mean if we will Christianize this, then we can make for ourselves a better system here. Or if I'm a good Christian, then I will then finally get out of that debt or I will get a better job. You get the backdrop of the thinking that can be there when persecution occurs like it did for the people in Asia Minor that could also then be a backdrop for false teachers. You're just susceptible to flipping through channels on the TV and hearing something that says, if you have enough faith or if you sow this seed or do whatever, then you will get this in return. As soon as you make the gospel a means to an end for your pleasure in this world, you have completely distorted the nature of the gospel. Blessed be the God inherently by definition means that God is inherently already happy and the expression of what gives him the greatest pleasure is the redemption of his people through his son. So we should stop and gaze and think what is the end game for me thinking about Why am I so disrupted by persecution? Well, I'm not saying be cold and heartless, not at all. I'm saying though, in light of all those things that are hurting, in very real ways bring tears. In very real ways. That you're thinking in light of perspective and saying, but what is this producing in me? It's not as if God is causing me an unhappiness in the thing that gives him the greatest joy, namely my salvation. What he's doing is he is allowing, even by necessity, which we'll talk about next week, by necessity, he is allowing there to be suffering so it purifies where our joy should rest, which circumstances cannot touch. Blessed be the God. He is a happy God. He is the God who is the source of the new birth. And out of his happiness and his joy and his glory, he has decided to save many. And before any of us would get offended or be offended that not all elect means therefore that all then will be saved, we have to understand something that we need to remember biblically that this nature of merciful salvation, that none of us deserve to be saved. None of us deserve a shot. In fact, there's no shot to be had for the dead. You are resurrected by a gracious God. But we're blind to all the work that he does, right? Behind the scenes, we don't know what he's doing. We know that when someone repents and has faith and they respond to that gospel that was preached or shared with them over a cup of coffee or over years and years of cups of coffee, that if they do respond by grace, It is still the powerful working of a merciful God that's done it. Through the God-man Jesus Christ. He is the source and he is the one that does it through Christ. Christ came. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he sources it, but he also has given us the means necessary He hasn't just said, hey, if you guys want to be saved and, you know, just like in in too many terrible VBS moments, you know, if you want some Jesus and some candy and joy and not a bad place like hell and they think it's a cuss word and I want all that, I'll raise my hand and they think that means salvation. That's not necessarily what's going on. We have to understand that he is saying, no, he has also provided the means. He's not just out there throwing this verbiage out into the cosmos and said, just come. He has actually provided the way and that way is only through Christ. So in order for us to find joy, we have to see that it comes from God. It comes through God, the God-man Christ. And it also comes to us in a particular way. 
What does he say about him? He says, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. So here's the means. It comes from God the Father through the person of Christ. And then the person of Christ then is described and the process of salvation is described as being one that is merciful, undeserved, full of grace, nothing at all that we brought to the table except the need to be saved. So it is sourced from God through Christ. And this Christ is merciful. This salvation is merciful. This salvation is sovereign. It says, I mean, there's just no way around the language. It says clearly that he has caused us to be born again. Look, there's varying degrees of accuracy in our various translations. And we would still assert that scripture is inerrant. Because the ideas that God conveys through faithful translations is what's held inerrant. Sometimes the precision of words can get lost a little bit. But none of your translations have something that's all that different than God made this happen. Now, this should not be an axe to grind um, and, and uh, to argue over. What it simply says is, why is this an issue? You know, no one who has actually had a father or someone else who has been basically flatlined and then by all kinds of miracles, uh, medically speaking, has been brought back to life, even just for, even if it was just a, a rebound for just a short period of time to say goodbye. I mean, everyone is infinitely grateful for those extra moments and thankful for whatever else happened. I don't know what it is about us that somehow we can look at resuscitation and resurrection and argue over the power that led to new life. Well, I do know why. It's because every last bit of effort that we can clamor for some kind of control or ability or power to do something for ourselves, we'll do it. You know why? Because the end of that is credit. Even though theologically we know better, God gets all the glory. And part of that is he also then, that means he has been, he, he so knows you because he made you. He was careful to make sure that you understand not only is he the source, but he is the means of salvation as well. So you don't get to find a little place you get to carve out for yourself in the salvation process except to say, I am a sinner. I would go to hell apart from him. Jesus, yes. And as humans, isn't that what we see? Isn't that what we rejoice over? Absolutely. The angels themselves don't rejoice until the moment that someone expresses faith in Christ. We should not argue over the sovereign God side of what has sourced that, which is his sovereign, good, gracious work that apart from him doing something sovereignly and graciously in your life, you would not be saved at all. So again, this is no extra ground even on my part. I, t I tend to want to treat election, predestination, whatever you want to call it. If you want to put isms on it, that's fine. You won't find me saying isms in the pulpit so much. If you want to have a cup of coffee or have a meal and just dive deep, let's go. But what I know is it's a little bit more matter of fact when it comes from the writers in the scriptures. And it's matter of fact in this, it's matter of fact in the point of comfort. A sovereign God has saved me because you know where he goes here? He talks about the inheritance he saved you to that no one can tear apart, that no one can defile, no one can take out of your hands and certainly no one can take you then out of his because it's a work of God. It's to be comfort. 
So this sourced new birth from a happy God through Christ and this Christ is a merciful Savior who saves us while we were still sinners, who's a sovereign Savior. He gave us birth, but he's a living Savior. Right? Isn't that what the text says? He says, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is a living Savior. The source of the new birth comes from this happy God through Christ who is merciful, sovereign, and alive. Otherwise, your hope is dead. You have no hope if Christ is not alive. Your hope of secured eternal salvation, your hope of basically, in a sense, once saved, always saved, is completely bound up in the fact that Jesus is perpetual. It's not bound up in the power of a prayer that you prayed or the veracity of the ink that was put at the front of your family Bible or the memory of your mother or your grandmother when you walk that particular aisle. I'm not denigrating the experiences, but I am denigrating it if that's where you're gonna base your hope of eternal security because scripture says it is bound up in a living Christ. Because that's where he goes. If the source of the new birth is God through Christ, the beauty of the new birth then is that this is forever. Look at what he says. To an inheritance, and then he describes that inheritance, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's kept in heaven for you. Imperishable. I love the description. I was looking around for different um, definitions of each of these words. And, and just the simplest and best that I found was not that it's incorruptible. It's uncorruptible. There was just something about that prefix that just really stuck with me. Because I got to be honest with you. Because anytime that I hear something that, that has N in it, like I-N, as in incorruptible or, or infamous, I, this is... So, I mean, one of the all-time greatest um, Oscar-wielding movies that's ever been made is Three Amigos. And um, uh, don't laugh, it is. It's, it's one of the best. And all of my children, as much as they are required to read the scriptures, are also required to watch Three Amigos. Not on equal ground. I'm just saying it's, it's a gauntlet that has to go through in the Lumpkin household. Um, but I, I just, I, I cannot get the imagery out of my head of Martin Short trying to describe when at the beginning of the movie when he describes what they didn't know what infamous means because they were they were being called to go to this town in Mexico anyway it's a long story but um it's it's the I'll say this it's the true and better magnificent seven for those of you who care anyway when he says infamous I just love Martin Short's description because he says oh it means that it's not only famous but it's in famous and he just leaves it there that's the best, right? That's the best. Well, I, I'm supposed to be a, a pastor with a, uh, with a couple of degrees that have a little more uh, knowledge than that. But the fact is, you don't need any more knowledge than this. I just simply want to leave it with you that the better prefix for it being the fact that it is imperishable is that it cannot be corrupted. It's incapable. Your inheritance, because it comes through a living Christ, the perfect God, the perfect Savior, the perfect Holy Spirit, completely untouched by sin, not its effects, nothing, because it is sourced there, your inheritance 
cannot be degraded. You do not have to show up at the vacation home and do a little bit of cleaning up first and just, but, but still you're, ha- you're seeing some degradation. Well, it's, we've got to redo the deck. Your inheritance in him is always, always perfect. It's imperishable. But it's also, again, remember, it's an inheritance. It is legally binding because of the legal transaction that occurred. It's an inheritance, which means you are an heir. You are a child of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You are then a citizen of this kingdom. And do we really want to then try to make our inheritance something in this world? And that's what we do. We mix it up because we still think moralistically that if we take some good God dust and sprinkle it on the things in this world that we can see that don't require faith, that makes us feel good about ourselves right now, sometimes even just being angry at the right things, then somehow that God dust will just sanctify something. But you know what you're doing? You're actually distorting God, that he is perfect, that he has not said, I'm going to make for myself a holy nation when it comes to a geographic location. He's making for himself a holy nation. Do, do, you know, I know Brandon's taught a ton on the temple over the years. I mean, you see one that is mobile. You see, then see one that's really fixed. And then you also see one self-referenced as the Christ who is then destroyed and then three days later built back up and they don't understand the reference to culminating with You're the temple, church, not this building, the people of God, because he's making for himself a people to reside and dwell within and dwell through, but it is far more like the tent of tabernacle that went through the wilderness than it is like the fortified temple that just frankly never stuck around very long at the heart of Jerusalem. Because you're sojourners, you're exiles, you're moving about in this world. But you house the very spirit of the living God. As an heir, you have a promised inheritance and you will not receive it while you are breathing in this life. But you trust and believe it to be there. It's literally what you're living for. And while you're living for it, you're also inviting others to share in it, right? Through gospel sharing and evangelism. It's an undefiled inheritance. It is completely devoid of a single particle of imperfection. So it cannot be corrupted even by just regular degradation, even just time, because it's infinite. It's bound up in a holy, infinite God. But nothing touches it that is defiled. Nothing can touch it that is sinful. Which is heirs, what should that do in us? It should provoke in us praise because you know what that means? You don't share in this inheritance if you have just even a particle of sinfulness remaining. It doesn't mean we don't send people. It simply means that Christ who bore the weight of God's wrath on our behalf, on the cross, has satisfied everything necessary for us to be okay with God for all time. Positionally, right, right now, whatever you did last night, whatever you've struggled with, whatever besetting sin continues to just beat you down. I am saying positionally, if 
you are genuinely in Jesus Christ, you are positionally perfect while even still you're being made perfect while you're still breathing in the flesh. This is why there's this incongruity between, you know, just like Paul said in Romans 7. I don't know why I keep doing the junk I keep doing. I hate it and I kind of hate myself for it. You are a sojourner here and you're still going to sin along the way. But there's an inheritance waiting for you that is perfect. And therefore, in order for you to have it, and it's already been guaranteed that you're going to because the Spirit of God has dwelt in you, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. It's a promise that guarantees your future inheritance. You can know this. That in this life, you're going to be made a little bit, a little bit, a little bit more perfect, but never quite arriving. You're going to be more and more and more faithful in sharing the gospel of grace But then once you exit this world, however all that works out in what we understand about our real presence with him right then prior to him coming here and receiving new bodies, regardless you begin experiencing the fullness of what the inheritance is in description here. That you are experiencing that there's no corruption. There's no sin. There's no effects of sin. It's perfect. Then he says it's unfading. I love this because it really is a sight word. There's no distortion in our view, our perspective once we are there. I I don't know at what like K level our TVs can get to before, well, I I think we're already there actually. Um, The sad part is for those of us who are a little bit tech geeks, as much as we love visual audio kind of stuff, uh, all of your systems in your body that actually would enjoy those things are degrading so fast that technology just can't possibly um, catch up quick enough for you to enjoy it. Um, so it's elusive. But the fact is, it really is. When you, when, if you remember the first time you went from, I don't know, like a regular TV to something a little more high def, and then you realize that high def and 1080p was nothing because then you start to see 4K and then 5K, the clarity is just... you. It's, it's, it, to me, and this is what I try to tell Jan and our need for a really large TV for the sake of ministry and fellowship in our house. Um, it's, it's, it's part of me seeing the imperishable inheritance that I have in the world to come. It's no longer distorted. And I need this distortion not to be there, honey, to remind me, to launch me to that place as I'm yelling at referees like I did last night in the Penn State game because man. Okay. All right. Well, so Then the last thing is simply this, is that the hope then is produced in us because of the source of the new birth being a happy God through the person of Christ, that it produces this beautiful picture of the inheritance that he is then guaranteed and has given us, okay? We have then the hope of new birth. The text goes on and just simply says, it's kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This inheritance is secured because it is kept by God, okay? So it's preserved there because he is perpetual and he is always alive, Christ is. So the inheritance itself is always waiting for you, but do you know the goodness of of God and the glory of God? Remember, blessed be the God, the happy God, the happy God that actually gives us new birth because what gives him the greatest glory is for those who are redeemed to just celebrate the fact that Christ is our treasure that we exalt Christ above all else, basically as our redeemer. We remember our salvation, basically. We go through difficulty to remind us of that, okay? 
He's kept, us, he's kept our inheritance there, but he preserves us here. So it's not just the inheritance to be received, but it's the heirs who will receive that inheritance who are also being kept. But it's a little messier here, right? Because we're people. We're humans. On one hand, I want to say that we need to cut each other some slack. There are times I think that we just need to celebrate that we're sinning less. And, and not necessarily wait till we're memorizing more scripture. But you do. You need to advance. I'm not being passive or, or uh, cheap here in my view of what lordship looks like. I'm just saying that as we progress, any progression at all in our sanctification and our becoming more Christ-like is something that we should celebrate. He has secured this inheritance. He literally has kept it. It literally means to watch over and guard. There's no stealing of it. There's no defiling of it. The risen Savior preserves our inheritance. Now on the human side then because he goes on that's exactly where he goes in the text he says it's kept in heaven for you and then the descriptor who by God's power are being guarded through faith you are being guarded in this world by faith and guess where he goes in the text and I hate this for all of us because he goes in verse 6 to and we rejoice in this fact if even it's necessary for a little while for us to suffer Why does suffering have to be part of our preservation of our inheritance? And yet it is. There is no way around it. It's not if, it is when. Now I know we have to guard against cynicism, always waiting for the next shoe to drop. The, the fact is suffering is just part of the deal. And in large part, it's just because this is not your home. You are an exile. The more you learn to celebrate and rejoice in being an exile, the better you will be able to understand and deal with suffering in a foreign land. Because you believe, and this is the faith, right? It says it's guarded for you through faith. The faith is, I believe in what I do not see, but I trust it to be absolutely evidentiary true. Uh, evidentially. Anyway, it's evidenced in how it works out. And what I mean by that is, I believe and know and trust that even my suffering is producing an heir that will receive that inheritance. Not, not that I'm increasingly becoming saved, so to speak, but that I'm increasingly looking, sounding, smelling saved in a world while I'm waiting to receive that inheritance that's to come. He keeps it for me there and he is faithful to prepare me for it while I'm here. We gotta look at these things and gaze and never forget that this blessed be the God phrase has birthed all of this. It doesn't mean happy-go-lucky while you're hurting. But what it does mean is you have a very f strong, stout, three-verse perspective on what's to come, what you're going through. That it is actually necessary for you to go through certain things. Now, Peter later on in the book will say, look, there's no benefit in suffering because you're sinning. But he also is careful to acknowledge, as he does in other places, and so does Paul, that look, if you do suffer because of sin, though, just don't treat it like it's righteous suffering, but it can caution and can cause you to stop sinning. So accept that. Take that. But the fact is, he is faithful to discipline his children. He is faithful to allow us and cause us to go through suffering because he's preparing us for something better, a perspective that he alone has because he is there. And he is alive and he's made it for us. 
And this is why as a church then we get to, as we gather, encourage one another to remember these things because we forget. It's so easy to forget when, especially when you hurt or suffer in a particular area that maybe you've not suffered in before. We forget. So brother and sister, I just encourage you so much to remember that this new birth that we reflect on is absolutely critical for our understanding of what it means to live as exiles. Because it is our pathway. It's our citizenship process of having become foreigners in this land. And remember that your happy, God-glorifying God has done this through Christ who is merciful and sovereign and alive. And he's done so in such a beautiful way because it has afforded us an inheritance that cannot be touched and cannot be corrupted. And it is kept for us in heaven by him. But that he is also faithful to do that for us. And that's our hope. Our hope is in something that's not yet to be. Not just yet. Our hope is that that very inheritance will be ours and that in, in the meantime, he is going to keep working on us so that we receive it well along the way. Because he's good that way. So I guess the first question as we close is simply, are you an heir? Do you even have an inheritance you're going to receive? Look, I mean, the text, even our text today is, is very clear. You don't have an inheritance if you don't have Christ. So in coming to Christ, you have to realize that this merciful Savior has not mercifully saved any and all throughout all of time, this universalism that all are saved even if they're not aware of it. Even Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, you must confess with your mouth, but you also must believe that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. You have to believe some pretty whacked out stuff to be a Christian, but that's stuff that only the Spirit of God gives you through the Word. You have to understand that you're a sinner and there's nothing you can do and there's nothing good in you at all that is worth saving. You have to realize that Jesus, though, has died in your place. You should have been there. But he died in your place, condemned. You have to believe he did that for you. But then he rose again three days later for you. And you have to believe that. And that's a belief that cannot be garnered from some kind of self-empowerment. It can only be received by a gift from the Holy Spirit that would give you what's called faith, believing in something you don't see, but you know it to be true because the word of God has said so. And then you can know that if you believe in those things, confess it with your mouth, believing in your heart that God's raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be an heir. And you will receive that inheritance. Just please understand something. And we all would testify to this, I hope so, faithfully in this room who are Christians, especially those who have been Christians for a bit. None of us would change it, trade it for anything. But it doesn't mean that circumstantially things in this world are going to get better. It does, however, just like I hope I've shown you faithfully today in the text, that there's always a reason, though, for what you're going through. What you need to remember that if you're really going to think about the practical aspects right here, you need to remember this. How empty is it to always feel hopeless 
and without any sense of purpose at all for all the things you're going through. At least on a day in and day out level. And I'm not saying this is the ultimate reason to be saved, but I am saying that for those who are truly born again, at least for us, we have to grapple with what we know to be the real reasons we're going through what we're going through. But we still go through them. Are you an heir? Christian, have you been trying to make for yourself an inheritance in this world? You're spending more effort there than you are in thinking about the inheritance to come, namely reading the word, praying the word, sharing the gospel with friends and family to introduce them to an inheritance. Because I promise you, if you're making an inheritance out of this world, you will spend much more of your time and your passions and your watching of different programs or reading or whatever else, you will spend way more of your passion over trying to convince people of your argument being the right one rather than sharing the gospel of grace. Basically, you become most passionate about what you want to be your inheritance the most. And trust this finally, church. Look, whatever we go through and whatever uh, we, we have gone through and whatever we will go through, please understand that we will try to, with one another, fight really hard to remind each other This is for a reason. He is preparing us for an inheritance that's to come. And as we'll see in the text as it plays out is that while we are being prepared in this world, there is an evangelistic missional aspect to how the lost world sees us suffer. While we also know that we are being prepared and fit for heaven, God is using that process to bring other people into the inheritance that's also to be theirs. I don't know if that totally makes sense, but you're going to have to trust me on this because the text goes there. And we're going to have to fight with one another and for one another to say, no, let's remember he's preparing us for something better. And while we are being prepared, he's still bringing others in. Otherwise, he would have already come. God, we want to thank you for the promises that we have in Christ. We thank you that we have the promises that you have made and you've been consistent to make and keep throughout all of scripture and throughout all of time. And because of that, we know that our salvation comes only from you and comes through you, Christ. And then once we are yours, Holy Spirit, you indwell us to guarantee the inheritances to come. And that inheritance itself is a beautiful thing to look upon. And you would not have given us such words or charged us, admonished us to think about whatever is beautiful, whatever is right, whatever is holy, whatever is good, whatever is true, to think on these things. We need to dwell and gaze upon the beauty of our inheritance and our salvation more than we do. We allow ourselves to look at things regularly, Lord, that just discourage and distress rather than embolden us to live patient and faithful lives. And Lord, I I just pray that you would remind us that there is a hope here that you are going to do what you said you are going to do. You are going to make your people ready to receive that inheritance and it will be at just the right time. But in the meantime, in the waiting period, you've simply told us that there's a way we are to be living in light of the suffering, in light of the difficulty. And it will also accomplish something that you're still doing, which is creating for yourself a people, bringing other people to faith 
so that they will then be heirs of that same kingdom that we are being prepared for. Do your will in and through us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.